following sermon was recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org. All right, so uh, good to be with you, and uh, this morning we're continuing this series in Numbers, so if you want to get to Numbers chapter 13, uh, get that ready to go, and we're going to, by God's grace, cover chapters 13 and 14 this morning. So if you want to get that queued up, um, to just kind of very, the most brief Summary you've ever heard to get you up to this point. Uh, Israel has been freed from slavery in Egypt. They've been journeying towards the promised land. They're almost there. And then this happens. Okay? So I know that was super brief, probably too brief, but you basically get it, I think. Uh, part of the challenge of preaching two whole chapters of very important narrative uh, is that you can feel like you're going to spend the whole time just saying what happened. But you want to do more than that. You want to explain why it matters and, and how the Lord was working in these things and how we can uh, just enjoy the knowledge of his goodness and his grace and his power together and live in light of those things. So um, here's what we're going to do. The plan is to read these two chapters, just read them, because they're going to do a better job of telling you what happened than I could do. It is God's word. And, uh, and then we will kind of break it down into a few sections, run through the narrative to make sure we're all up to speed on, on what exactly was happening, what was at play here. And then, we will, uh, and then we'll allow the scriptures to interpret the scriptures so that we understand why this all matters, why it's important to us, important to the glory of God. So here we go. He, uh, sorry, Numbers uh, chapter 13. I'll read this out loud if you want to follow along. And then if you would bear with me, uh, when we've finished reading, we'll just stop again and pray and ask the Lord for his help. Numbers chapter 13. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, Send men to spy out the land of Canaan, which I'm giving to the people of Israel. From each tribe of their fathers you shall send a man, every one a chief among them. So Moses sent them from the wilderness of Paran, according to the command of the Lord, all of them men who were heads of the people of Israel, and these were their names. Here we go. From the tribe of Reuben, Shamua, the son of Zachur. From the tribe of Simeon, Shaphat, the son of Hori. From the tribe of Judah, Caleb, the son of Jephunneh. From the tribe of Issachar, Egal, the son of Joseph. From the tribe of Ephraim, Hoshea, the son of Nun. From the tribe of Benjamin, Palti, the son of Rephu. From the tribe of Zebulun, Gadiel, the son of Sodi. From the tribe of Joseph, that is, from the tribe of Manasseh, Gadi, the son of Susi. From the tribe of Dan, which is really weird because I know a married couple named Dan and Susi, these people were not married, and I don't know them, okay? From the tribe of Dan, Amiel, the son of Gamaliel. From the tribe of Asher, Sether, the son of Michael. From the tribe of Naphtali, Nabi, the son of Vophshi. From the tribe of Gad, Giel, the son of Mekai. These were the names of the men who Moses sent to spy out the land, and Moses called Hoshea, the son of Nun, Joshua. 
Moses sent them to spy out the land of Canaan and said to them, Go up into the Negeb and up into the hill country and see what the land is and whether the people who dwell in it are strong or weak, whether they are few or many, whether the land that they dwell in is good or bad, and whether the cities they dwell in are camps or strongholds, and whether the land is rich or poor, and whether there are trees in it or not. Be of good courage and bring some of the fruit of the land. Now the time was the season of the first ripe grapes. So they went up and spied out the land from the wilderness of Zin to Rehob near Labohamath. They went up into the Negev and came to Hebron, and sorry, Ahaman, Jeshai, and Talmai, the descendants of Anak, were there. Hebron was built seven years before Zon in Egypt. And they came to the valley of Eshkol and cut down from there a branch with a single cluster of grapes. And they carried it on a pole between two of them. They also brought some pomegranates and figs. That place was called the Valley of Eshkol because of the cluster that the people of Israel cut down from there. At the end of 40 days, they returned from spying out the land. And they came to Moses and Aaron and to all the congregation of the people of Israel in the wilderness of Paran at Kadesh. They brought back word to them and to all the congregation and showed them the fruit of the land. And they told him, We came to the land to which you sent us. It flows with milk and honey, and this is its fruit. However, the people who dwell in the land are strong, and the cities are fortified and very large. And besides, we saw the descendants of Anak there. The Amalekites dwell in the land of the Negev, the Hittites, the Jebusites, the Amorites dwell in the hill country, and the Canaanites dwell by the sea and along the Jordan. But Caleb quieted the people before Moses and said, Let us go up at once and occupy it, for we are well able to overcome it. Then the men who had gone up with him said, We are not able to go up against these people, for they are stronger than we are. So they brought to the people of Israel a bad report of the land that they had spied out, saying, The land through which we have gone to spy it out is a land that devours its inhabitants, and all the people that we saw in it are of great height. And there we saw the Nephilim, the sons of Anak, who come from the Nephilim. And we seemed to ourselves like grasshoppers, and so we seemed to them. Then all the congregation raised a loud cry, and the people wept that night. And all the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The whole congregation said to them, Would that we had died in the land of Egypt, or would that we had died in this wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become a prey. Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to one another, Let us choose a leader and go back to Egypt. Then Moses and Aaron fell on their faces before all the assembly of the congregation of the people of Israel. And Joshua the son of Nun and Caleb the son of Jephunneh, who were among those who had gone to spy out the land, tore their clothes and said to all the congregation of the people of Israel, The land which we pass through to spy it out is an exceedingly good land. If the Lord delights in us, He will bring us into this land and give it to us, a land that flows with milk and honey. Only do not rebel against the Lord, and do not fear the people of the land, for they are bread for us. Their protection is removed from them, and the Lord is with us. Do not fear them. Then all the congregation said, to stone them with stones. But the glory of the Lord appeared at the tent of meeting to all the people of Israel. And the Lord said to Moses, 
How long will those people despise me? And how long will they not believe in me? In spite of all the signs that I have done among them, I will strike them with pestilence and disinherit them. And I will make of you a nation greater and mightier than they. But Moses said to the Lord, Then the Egyptians will hear of it. For you brought up this people in your might from among them, and they will tell the inhabitants of this land. They have heard that you, O Lord, are in the midst of this people. For you, O Lord, are seen face to face, and your cloud stands over them, and you go before them, and a pillar of cloud by day, and in a pillar of fire by night. Now if you kill this people as one man, then the nations who have heard your fame will say, It is because the Lord was not able to bring this people into the land that he swore to give them, that he has killed them in the wilderness. And now please let the power of the Lord be great as you have promised, saying, The Lord is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, forgiving iniquity and transgression. But he will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and to the third and the fourth generation. Please pardon the iniquity of this people according to the greatness of your steadfast love, just as you have forgiven this people from Egypt until now. Then the Lord said, I have pardoned according to your word. But truly, as I live and as all the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord, none of the men who have seen my glory and my signs that I did in Egypt and in the wilderness and yet have put me to the test these ten times and have not obeyed my voice, shall see the land that I swore to give their fathers. And none of those who despised me shall see it. But my servant Caleb, because he has a different spirit and has followed me fully, I will bring into the land into which he went, and his descendants shall possess it. Now since the Amalekites and the Canaanites dwell in the valleys, turn tomorrow and set out for the wilderness by the way to the Red Sea. And the Lord spoke to Moses and to Aaron, saying, How long shall this wicked congregation grumble against me? I have heard the grumblings of the people of Israel, which they grumble against me. Say to them, As I live, declares the Lord, what you have said in my hearing, I will do to you. Your dead bodies shall fall in this wilderness. And of all your number, listed in the census from twenty years old and upward, who have grumbled against me, not one shall come into the land where I swore that I would make you dwell except Caleb the son of Jephunneh and Joshua the son of Nun. But your little ones, who you said would become a prey, I will bring in, and they shall know the land that you have rejected. But as for you, your dead bodies shall fall in this wilderness, and your children shall be shepherds in the wilderness forty years, and shall suffer for your faithlessness until the last of your dead bodies lies in the wilderness." According to the number of the days in which you spied out the land, forty days, a year for each day, you shall bear your iniquity forty years, and you shall know my displeasure. I, the Lord, have spoken. Surely this I will do to this wicked congregation who are gathered together against me. In this wilderness they shall come to a full end, and there they shall die. And the men whom Moses sent to spy out the land, who returned and made all the congregation grumble against him by bringing up a bad report about the land, the men who brought up a bad report of the land died by a plague from the Lord. Of those men who went to spy out the land, only Joshua the son of Nun and Caleb the son of Jephunneh remained alive. When Moses told these words to all the people of Israel, the people mourned greatly. 
And they rose early in the morning and went up to the heights of the hill country, saying, Here we are. We will go up to the place that the Lord has promised, for we have sinned. But Moses said, Why now are you transgressing the command of the Lord when that will not succeed? Do not go up, for the Lord is not among you, lest you be struck down before your enemies. For there the Amalekites and the Canaanites are facing you, and you shall fall by the sword. Because you have turned back from following the Lord, the Lord will not be with you. But they presumed to go up to the heights of the hill country, although neither the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord nor Moses departed out of the camp. Then the Amalekites and the Canaanites who lived in that hill country came down and defeated them and pursued them even to Hormah. Let's pray. Lord, we do thank you so much for your word. We know that it has power to tell us the truth about you, about your will for our lives, about your plan to make your name great in the earth. And we know that it has power to transform us, to conform us to the image of Christ, that we would be more like him and glorify you. So, Lord, please help us. By your Holy Spirit now, the only power we can rely on, not ourselves, our ability to understand, our ability to submit and obey and walk in your word, by the power of your Spirit, will you please change our hearts, help us, strengthen us, and, and solidify our commitment to trust you. We ask you for these things, trusting in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so the first part of this, uh, most of chapter 13, is really mostly just about spying and reporting, isn't it? It just kind of tells us what happens here. The Lord tells Moses to send out the spies. He reminds them that he is giving them the land. He, he doesn't say, I might give you the land. He, uh, he doesn't say, I'm not sure yet, but I think I might do this. He just says, the land which I am giving you. He gives this solid reminder. The Lord doesn't say, go and spy out the land to make sure I picked out a good spot. He doesn't say, go and send spies in there to make sure there aren't any giants. Because if there are, surely I wouldn't be able to do anything about that. I mean, they're giants. He just says, send spies into the land that I'm going to give you. He wants them to go take a look before he gives it to them. And most likely he meant this to be an encouragement to them. I want you to see that this is something I'm going to do. I want you to see the land that I'm going to give you. Bring back a report to all the people and then you can go. When Moses sends them out, notice that he's interested in the details of this land. I, I, think this is a, I think this is a peculiar thing that Moses does here. How many people are there? Do they seem strong? Are they dwelling in tents? Are they dwelling in strongholds? Are there trees? Didn't that kind of catch you off guard? Are there trees? I know that there must be really good and wise and important reasons for it. But right here, there's no explanation. Moses is just looking for details about the best parts of the land that God is giving them. He wants to know how great it is, not how scary it is, not how in the world are we going to pull this off? Which side should we attack from? Just the Lord's giving this to us. Go and search it out and tell us all the great things about the land. Help us think about it. And he finishes sending them with this confidence that they would succeed and that all would be well. Be of good courage, he says. Be of good courage and 
bring back some of the fruit of the land. If you have any doubt at all about the success of the mission, do you end it with, hey, bring back some fruit. Bring back some fruit. We just want to know how great it is. Enjoy it together. You don't say bring back fruit unless you're completely confident that they're coming back and everything's going to be great, right? Uh, And I know in, in a lot of cultures, it is a tradition. When you go away and you come back, you bring back gifts, even fruit. That was the expectation here. You're going to go, you're going to fulfill the mission, you're going to come back, we're going to enjoy some of the fruit of the land, we're going to celebrate that the Lord has been successful in bringing us to this point. Now He's shown us the land, we're excited we can go. That's the mission. So here's how this mission starts. The Lord says, go check out the land I'm going to give you. Moses says, God said, go check it out. Collect some information. Don't be afraid. Pick up some fruit on your way home. I'm assuming it's on the way home. They didn't carry the cluster of grapes for 40 whole days walking around in cities. So they launch out on their mission and they spend 40 days going through the land just like the Lord had commanded, even bringing back some grapes, pomegranates, and figs, maybe just for Moses. I'm not sure if that was for everyone or just for him. So that basically uh, brings us up to chapter 14, doesn't it? They, they go and they fulfill this mission. But then we soon realize that most of the spies did not take the encouraging words of Moses to heart. They did not. They were not of good courage. In fact, they didn't even take the promise of God to heart. Not only were they not of good courage, not only did they not trust Moses and his encouraging word to them and his confidence that they would be able to go and fulfill the mission and even bring back fruit to enjoy. But they didn't trust that the Lord was with them, that the Lord was going before them, that the Lord had complete control, sovereignly, powerfully, lovingly, over what would happen to them. They didn't take the promise of God to heart. Apparently, ten of these spies set out with a conditional belief in the Lord. And two of them set out with an unconditional belief in the Lord. Here's what I mean. The ten who came back and stirred up all this fear among all the people, brought back the bad report about the good land, they only believed that the Lord would give them the land if, if, this is always dangerous territory, isn't it? Lord, I believe you if, They believed him if they could see a clear, safe path forward. If they could see a clear, safe path, then they believed that the Lord would do everything he said he was going to do. But if the path wasn't clear or wasn't safe, then doubt was creeping in. In fact, the doubt that was already there would just rise up. But the two faithful spies, Caleb and Joshua, they believed the Lord would give them the land Because the Lord said he would. Not because they saw the way forward. Not because they saw that it was safe. But because the Lord said he would. Now, we all know the difference. We all know the difference in our hearts between trusting that the Lord will do what he said because we can see how he's going to do it or trusting that the Lord will do what he said because the Lord said he would do it. It's a very straightforward and simple difference 
And we all know the difference. I've lived the difference. My heart torn in two, struggling, doubting, fearing, knowing that the Lord is calling me to step forward into what He's called me to, but not seeing a way forward and struggling to take the step. I know what's happening. I know the difference. It's between taking God at His word and being able to see the way forward. So do I believe in the promises of God because I can see the whole plan? God's made it obvious. He's removed every obstacle before I even get started. Or do I believe the promises of God because God is absolutely believable? Because God is who God is. Not because God has done this, or God has proven that, or I know my ability to trust Him, or walk with Him, or hear from Him, or obey Him, or make up for Him when He fails to take care of me. None of those things, but only that I know God gives me enough to know that I can believe Him. Because He is believable. Amen? God is entirely believable. This was the struggle in their hearts. We're going to come back around to this in a much greater sense than just land, but about eternity. But for now, we'll just keep rolling through our passage. So the spies come back to the camp with a report. Look at me. Uh, look with me at verse uh, chapter 13, verse 27. We came to the land to which you sent us. It flows with milk and honey, and this is its fruit. However, however. The people who dwell in the land are strong, and the cities are fortified and very large. And besides, we saw the descendants of Anak there. The Amalekites dwell in the land of the Negev, the Hittites, the Jebusites, the Amorites dwell in the hill country, the Canaanites dwell by the sea and along the Jordan. Later on, they go on to stress this thing about giants. The Nephilim are there. You remember from way back in Genesis 6, giants in the land? Terrifying, unnatural kind of human beings who were terrorizing people on the earth. They were absolutely terrified. But listen to their report. They bring back this report. We came to the land to which you sent us. It flows with milk and honey. Here's its fruit. However, isn't that a weird way to intro a successful mission? Yeah, we went, we came back. Uh, it was just like the Lord said, here's some of its fruit. Okay, but listen. You listen to me. Like, wait, wait a second. So you went and you did it, and you came back, and there's its fruit. You even came back with fruit. You didn't come back screaming with your robes tattered, armies chasing you out. None of that. You came back with fruit. However, however, all of these negative, scary, horrible things, I imagine it's like, uh, can I get a show of hands? Who has either read the books or seen the movies, The Lord of the Rings? I thought so. Okay. So, uh, enough of you that this will mostly work. Okay. So, I want you to imagine that you've never read it, never seen it, and you go, what happened? And somebody who's read it or seen it goes, uh, the hobbits destroy the ring, they make it back home. However, okay, however... Uh, they destroy the ring, save the world. However, thousands of, of dead bodies everywhere. Old friends turning on each other. Evil wizards creating murderous war monsters. Cities were burned. Thirst, 
hunger, pain, betrayal, reckless evil, and hatred. Wait, did you say that they made it back? Did you say they won? What was all that other stuff? What? Why are you only telling me that stuff? They won. The hobbits made it back, right? That's the important part. But they just skip right over it, and they just only want to tell them all the horrible, painful, scary reasons why we can't do this. Like, like as if you were going, well, maybe I could go to Mordor and throw a ring into a volcano. And they're going, no! Don't try it! It was terrible! They made it back, but it was horrible! They give this really unfaithful, dishonest, disingenuous report out of their fear. Out of their fear. Now, it could be that everything they reported was actually true, even that there were giants in the land, descendants of Anak, but that doesn't change the fundamental problem in their hearts. Whatever they saw, whatever they experienced while they were there, it doesn't change the fundamental problem. If God says He will do something, our circumstances cannot possibly unmake His promise. They can't. They don't have that kind of power. No one and nothing has that kind of authority. If God says, I will do it, it's as good as done. But in their hearts, they didn't believe that. They didn't trust God in that way. They thought that like their commitment to Him, that His commitment to them was conditional. Conditional on circumstances. So Caleb, unable to hear this very pessimistic, faithless report, he interrupts to try to steer it back to what the Lord has promised them, but they just will not hear it. They've made up their minds. All is lost. This is a fool's errand, and we should just go back home. They continue to argue from fear. Then look at uh, chapter 14, verses 1 through 4 with me. Then all the congregation raised a loud cry, and the people wept that night. And all the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The whole congregation said to them, Would that we had died in the land of Egypt, or would that we had died in this wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become a prey. Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to one another, let us choose a leader and go back to Egypt. But the faithful brothers among them continue to plead with them to trust in the Lord. Moses and Aaron fall on their faces in grief over their lack of faith. Joshua and Caleb again try to reason with them. Then look at verses 5 through 9 here. Then Moses and Aaron fell on their faces before all the assembly of the congregation of the people of Israel And Joshua, the son of Nun, and Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, who were among those who had spied out the land, tore their clothes and said to the congregation of the people, The land which we pass through to spy it out is an exceedingly good land. If the Lord delights in us, He will bring us into this land and give it to us, a land that does flow with milk and honey. Only do not rebel against the Lord. Do you see what's at stake here? Rebellion against the Lord. For they are bread for us. We will go in and eat them. Don't be afraid of your food. Their protection is removed from them. 
The Lord is with us. Do not fear them. The Lord is with us over and over again in the Scriptures. When there's this proclamation that the Lord is with you, it's not just that He's near you, He's in proximity to you. The Lord's around. If He notices, He might do something. If the Lord is with you, it's like your comrade in battle who is mighty and fierce is with you to fight alongside you and protect you at all costs. And if the Lord is with you, the battle is won. The Lord is with us. Do not fear them. Then the congregation repented and believed because of course that makes sense. No. They said to stone them with stones. Just stone them. I mean, the hard-heartedness, the irrational hard-heartedness here. We can't hear your report, grab the rocks. These guys have to die. They're just completely blinded with their fear now and their lack of faith. Now, at this point, the Lord decides that He's going to intervene. He decides He's going to intervene. He's been quiet up to this point. I mean, it's been... Over 40 days since they last heard from him when he said to send out the spies. And now the Lord is going to speak to save his faithful servants who are about to be stoned for their faithfulness. And he discusses with Moses where they're going to go from here. So uh, verses 11 and 12, please look at that with me. And the Lord said to Moses, how long will this people despise me? How long will they not believe in me? In spite of all the signs that I've done among them. I will strike them with the pestilence and disinherit them. And I will make of you a nation greater and mightier than they. As the Apostle Paul tells his disciple Timothy, every passage of Scripture is useful. Teaching, correcting, training, righteousness. Every passage. And these two verses say so much about the Lord. So much about the Lord. They show us something about God. But if we don't understand these scriptures in light of the whole counsel of scripture, it would be very easy to take it the wrong way. So let's do this. Uh, I just want to read some scriptures to you. Uh, They're not going to be up there, most likely, and and I'm not going to ask you to flip all over your Bible really fast. I'm just going to say some things that God's word says about God and specifically in his relationship to sinful, rebellious people. Psalm 86:15 But you, O Lord, are a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Psalm 116:5 Gracious is the Lord and righteous. Our God is merciful. 2 Chronicles 36:14 and 15 All the officers and the priests and the people likewise were exceedingly unfaithful following all the abominations of the nations. And they polluted the house of the Lord that He had made holy in Jerusalem. The Lord, the God of their fathers, sent persistently to them by messengers because He had compassion on His people. Romans 5, 7 and 8, For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one might dare even to die. But God shows His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. 
Revelation 4.8 Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. All these things are God's word about God's character. They're true all the time. All the time. Even in Numbers chapter 14 when he says, that's it. Even then, God is merciful and gracious, abounding in steadfast love with compassion for His people, sending persistently to them, loving them, caring for them, waiting for them to return. So now we see that God is merciful and He's gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love, sending messengers to warn us in our sins because of His great compassion for us and even more than that sending his own son to die for us to redeem us and adopt us into his family more than just not kill us when we deserve it he is holy 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 always perfect in all his ways so we cannot read this passage and think that God had a moment where his judgment slipped where his temper flared in some kind of impatient way. We cannot read it that way because the entire Bible would disagree with us, would it not? This conversation between God and Moses here is not God snapping and Moses calming him down. I don't know if you've ever had somebody teach it to you that way, but it's not like God was just going, that's it, I'm going to kill him. I'm going to kill. Like the way your kids do that thing the thousandth time, you go, I'm going to kill them. I'm not joking. I am serious-ish. I'm going to kill them. And Moses is just like, whoa, hey, whoa. Sovereign Lord of heaven and earth who created all things, take a deep breath. All right, take a deep breath. Don't do something you'll regret. You're right, you're right, I'm sorry, it's been a rough year, okay, I'm not myself lately, you're right. What do you think we should do? That is not what's happening here. You have a very steady, stable, wise, all-knowing God with good intentions and complete control of himself. That's what you have here. He constantly possesses every great quality that His Word says He does. Always holy and perfect in all His ways. What God describes here is a perfectly justified option that He has. That's what He describes. Perfectly justified option. In fact, He is describing what the people deserved. Right? He's describing what they deserved to be disinherited and killed in the wilderness and and left forgotten and we'll start over with Moses. We'll do something better this time. That's what they deserved. So what Moses pleads for here is not that God be reasonable, but that he be merciful. That's what Moses is pleading for. God, you are justified. You're righteous. You're righteous in your intention to kill them and start over, but I plead with you to not give them what they deserve. Instead, give them what they don't deserve. 
Please rescue them from themselves. Please don't kill them. For your name's sake, Lord. Not even for them. But for your name's sake, that you would not be known by the other nations as a God who can't. And God, because He is merciful, and because He is free to do as He pleases in His perfect, righteous sovereignty, He immediately pardons their sin and decides not to do what He said He was going to do. God's prerogative. Amen? I know that's mysterious for us. I'm going to do this. Please have mercy. Okay, I won't. Doesn't that seem like, well, isn't a God who knows everything and He's sovereign and He he knew Moses Moses was going to say that? Whoa. The Bible says, God said, I'm going to do this. Moses said, please have mercy for your name's sake. Okay. I have pardoned. You see the very next thing God says? Not, okay, I'll think about it. Not, okay, I will pardon. Not, once they have, then. Not once I see in them then. He says, I've heard you and I have pardoned. Forgiveness. Like that. This is God. This is God. Let that characterize God in this passage for you. Not some imaginary God who's flying off the handle. But a God who is steadfast in His love and eager to forgive where there is a call, a plea for mercy. Now you might ask, how can God say that He pardoned them when He still punished them? That's a great question. The Bible has a great answer. Romans 6.23 For the wages of sin is death. And He did not kill them right there. That's what they deserved. But He didn't kill them right there. Even though He could have. Remember Moses said, if you kill them as one man, if you just wipe them out, He did not do that. Instead, he disciplined them for their lack of faith. They were going to die in this wilderness. God pardoned them from the death sentence that they deserved for their sin and instead chose to discipline them for their lack of faith. And trust me when I say I know personally that it is only by God's constant mercy that I am alive at all, ever, now. Now in this moment, only by God's constant mercy, because we've all sinned, we all deserve to die for it. He's constantly merciful, and we are called constantly dependent on Him for that, whether we realize it or not, whether we appreciate it or not. So God kept His promise to give the land to the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but it would not be this generation who would enter. They were going to die in the wilderness, and their children who they were leading astray, God was going to lead into the promised land to inherit it. Caleb and Joshua would be able to go with their families. And then here in the very final part, verses 39 through 45 of chapter 14, what we see here is unrepentant people trying in the flesh to fix their problem with a holy God that they have sinned against. Trying in their flesh to make it right. Not trusting in God, not waiting on God, not pleading with God, just going, okay, you know what? The whole thing about not trusting Him, not believing in Him, not being willing to do this, killing everybody who wants us to go and picking a new leader and going back to Egypt, 
never mind. Okay, never mind. We can see now that was wrong. We're ready to go in. We got our swords. Just tell us which direction to head. And Moses says, no, no, no. It's too late for that. God has made a judgment. God has given a command. You think by disobeying God, you're going to somehow receive a blessing from God? Don't do this. It'll turn out horribly for you. And, of course, it does. So that's, that's kind of the, uh, the nuts and bolts of this. That's what happened, okay? That's what happened. Now, here's the thing about this passage. It is critically important in the history of Israel. This is now the second time that they have done this. God says ten times that they have betrayed him in this kind of way. It's the second time that they have completely turned their backs on God, rebelled against his direct orders, and chosen to do the opposite of what he says. The first time was creating their own God when Moses wasn't there. And God said, I'm going to kill him. I'm going to start over. And Moses says, please, for your name's sake, don't do it. Forgive them, please. And he says, I'll forgive them. We're going to keep moving. Now, again, they do the same kind of thing. And and God says, okay, I won't kill them again. I pardon and I'll keep my word to their fathers to give Israel this land. But this generation won't go in. Why is it so important? Well, just like everything that happened in the Old Testament, everything that happened in the history of Israel and their relationship to God and His commandments to them and their disobedience towards Him, His love for them and their rebellion against Him, His persistence, His compassion, His grace, His patience, His mercy, their irreverence, their idolatry, Just like all of it is meant to do, this is meant to show us the better fulfillment of who God was being towards the nation of Israel. That there's something happening here that is a shadow. It's a copy. It's a precursor. A type. That is just pointing us towards something that is much greater. Much greater. And something that's not about land... And, and giants and swords drawn. But it's about eternity. It's about souls. It's about life and death in the most eternal sense. At the heart of this passage, here's what we're looking at. We're looking at a holy God, a sinful people, a covenant between them, and a mediator Of that covenant. Does that sound familiar at all to you in your own personal life? A holy God, a sinful people, a covenant between them, and a mediator of that covenant. God is still holy, people are still sinful, but now Jesus has established a new covenant. Not a covenant that's kept by sacrificing bulls and goats and and using their blood in order to bring forgiveness of sins only for amount of time until we have to come and do it again and ask God to forgive us year after year after year. But a new covenant, not sealed with the blood of bulls and goats, but with the, the blood of Christ Himself shed at the cross. 
A new covenant that promises eternal life for those who put faith in Jesus, not a covenant to give land. And Jesus has not only established this new covenant in his death for us, but he also replaces Moses as a better mediator because he was raised from the dead and now forever lives to intercede for us. Everything about Jesus and the covenant he established and his mediation between us and a holy God is just so much better than what they were experiencing. We're not better than them. But Jesus is better than Moses, and the covenant is better than bulls and goats. The blood of Christ has more power than the blood of animals for the forgiveness of sins. We live in a time where we can see and believe and enjoy the greater, better, more satisfying, eternal fulfillment of the things that we look back on to try to understand. And it all hinges on who Christ is and what he's done for us. Hebrews 9.15 Therefore he, Jesus, is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, not the promised land in the Middle East. An eternal promise received as an inheritance through faith in Christ. But it was always about faith, wasn't it? Was it that the people messed up that God decided He was going to be done with them? Was it that they messed up, that they disobeyed some command, that Moses pleaded with mercy? No, it was their lack of faith. They didn't trust in God. So salvation by grace through faith is not the new thing. Now it's through Christ. And by His blood He's established it forever to be the way of salvation Now, we read two chapters in the Old Testament to understand what happened, and I'm trying to lead you now into its fulfillment and why it matters, so let's do two chapters in the New Testament that speak directly to it. I I promised you that we were going to let the New Testament interpret the Old, so here we go, Hebrews chapter 3 and 4. And I, I would ask you, I don't have the right to command you, even though I have a microphone strapped to my head, you'd think that would come with authority to just command this kind of stuff, but no. So I'm going to ask you to turn to Hebrews 3 and 4 and read it with me. Not out loud, that would be confusing. Hebrews chapter 3 and 4. And just like we did the first two chapters, I'll read this out loud if you would please follow along. If you're new to the Bible, we're really glad that you're here and glad to get a chance to teach it to you and learn it with you. And Hebrews is way towards uh, the end of the New Testament. Uh, You're going to go past Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, all those things. If you get to, say, James or 1 Peter or something like that, you've gone too far. Hebrews chapter 3. Therefore, holy brothers, that is, brothers who have faith in God and have been made holy by their faith in Christ, Christians. Therefore, holy brothers... You who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus. Consider Him. The apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to Him who appointed Him, that is the Father, just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. 
For every house is built by someone, but the, but the building of all things is God, who is Christ, who receives more glory than Moses, who was just part of the house. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ, but Christ is faithful over God's house as a son, not as a servant, as a son. And we are his house if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Numbers 13 and 14. Therefore I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. That is the promised land. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart. Remember, it's always been about faith from the heart. Leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin, picking up stones to kill a faithful messenger. The hardness of heart, hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end, our belief in the gospel. As it is said today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. Therefore, while the promise of entering rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. That is Caleb and Joshua. For we who have believed enter that rest. As he has said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. He's talking about creation now. For he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way. And God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again in this passage he said, They shall not enter my rest. That is those who could not enter by unbelief. Since therefore it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience, again he appoints a certain day, today, saying through David so long afterward, and the words already quoted, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God rested from his. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest 
the rest that God offers, a rest of trusting in God and walking in His promises, so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. For the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit and of joints and of marrow and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him whom we must give account. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession, our belief in the gospel. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses because we are very much like those people who rebelled, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Can you see now that Numbers 13 and 14 is not meant to just terrify us that if we disobey this holy, angry, irrational God, He might destroy us. Instead, Numbers 13 and 14 is meant to point us to the hope we have that if we only trust Him, not earn His love, not earn His protection, not earn some right to call Him Father, but only trust that His promises in Christ are true, we will enter into that inheritance, that rest. We'll enjoy Him. We'll love Him. And He'll love us like a father with His children for eternity. And that's a better hope than just walking across a river into a certain plot of land knowing you won't die for it. It's so much better to know that Christ by His own blood and by His constant merciful intercession for us as a great high priest raised from the dead to live forever and who cannot be defeated will always stand in our place. Always, like Moses, say, please, Lord, please, for your name's sake. I know it's again and again and again and again. And then the next day, again and again and again, for your name's sake, will you continue to love them? When you continue to hold them, will you continue to persistently send messengers because of your great compassion for them? God says, not only that, I'll put my spirit in them, to guide them, to teach them, to lead them, to convict them, and to seal them for the day when Christ will come and gather His own to Him. It is an absolutely certain promise that if you trust in Christ, you will enter the rest of Christ on that great day. No amount of your disobedience can cause God to give up on you because it is God's own word that he's holding to, not your level of performance. I love God for that. Because the one who has sinned much loves the Master much. And I am wicked. I am wicked before a holy God. And I am so grateful that Jesus stands there in my place greater than Moses with a greater gospel and greater bloodshed to sprinkle on me and make me holy forever.
aren't we grateful for Christ and all that he's done for us? God was good to preach these things beforehand and to fulfill them in Christ and to remind us of them this morning through his word. So let's thank him for that. Father, thank you that you are persistent in your compassion to us. You've been listening to a sermon recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org. Thank you.